Let us now continue to work our way through Mark's gospel in chapter 11, verses 27 through 12, 12. We find our text this morning, and we are in the Passion Week account in Mark's gospel. Let us bow before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, in these few moments before reading the Word of God, we pour out our hearts in prayer, for we are grateful people that the Word of God has been given to us with all of its promises, teaching us that Thou art a covenant-making and keeping God, and that the promises of God are to be relied upon. We ask that the Spirit of God will illumine our minds in the page before us so that this divinely inspired, inerrant Word of God will fill our minds and our hearts and transform us. And we ask also, Heavenly Father, that those who may not know Christ would come to know Him even on this Lord's Day morning. But Heavenly Father, as we pray and ask these blessings and ask these things, we simply wish to say to the God who has so loved us that he gave his only son to redeem and given us his word that we may see him on every page and to guide our lives all the way to heaven, we want to say, Lord, we love thee. Our hearts return in love to the one who loves us. Our hearts now come to the word of God filled with adoration and worship and reverence, but also joy and filled with love for the one who has not left us to our own devices, but has given to us the sacred word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please take your copy of God's word and stand. Mark chapter 11, beginning with verse 27. This is the word of the Lord. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed, and so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. 
he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God. After Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, after the cries of the, cry, uh, the crowds had died down, Jesus surveyed the temple precincts. And there, you will remember, he saw his temple. His temple. It was abused by money changers. And this was the temple that pointed to him, that pointed to his atoning work. His death for sinners. His satisfaction of the wrath of God the way that peace with God could be known through him. He cleansed the temple and he drove out the money changers and the hucksters. And he does this on his way to the cross. And he's saying, do you see your temple? My temple, but you've made it to fit your wicked ends. Do you see your temple? Do you see your religion? Do you see your lives? It's all barren. And so must life be when it is considered ours and not his. Life is barren when we attempt to live it for ourselves. And on this day, Jesus returns to the temple and he has cleansed it. And there he begins to teach and the leaders are very, very angry with him. And so they begin to question his authority. By what authority do you do this? Or who sent you with authority to do this? And this shows the barrenness of their lives, that the Lord Jesus has done what he has done in their midst, and they still cannot see or will not see. And so we begin with, first, conflict over Jesus' authority, which takes in verses 27 to about 33. It's the chief priests from which the high priest would be selected, by the way, who were largely Sadducees, and the scribes, most of whom were Pharisees, who were interpreters of the law. And the elders, every city had elders. The most prominent elders would become members of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin. It was that group that questions Jesus' authority. So those approaching Jesus were almost certainly delegated by the Sanhedrin, and they question his authority, and they wish to humiliate him before all of the people. So we read in verse 28 of chapter 11, they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority to do them? Well, Jesus asks a counter question. 
I'm not going to answer that unless you answer a question that I'm going to ask you. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or men? Answer me. Well, by asking this question, the Lord Jesus created a dilemma. Had they answered from God, John the Baptist was from God, then Jesus would have said, then why don't you believe what John prophesied and preached about me? But if they answered that, well, he was from men, then all of the people around believed that he was a prophet and they are on the outs with the people that are around him. And so Jesus said, you're not answering my question, therefore I'm not answering the question that you've asked about my authority, which by the way should have been evident to them anyway. And in this, as I was thinking about this text, we find a fulfillment of that proverb, Proverbs 26 verse 5, that says, answer a fool according to his own folly, and answer not a fool according to his folly. That is exactly what Jesus did here. Because you see, the fundamental issue is the foolishness of their hearts, isn't it? The fundamental issue is their hearts were closed to the truth. And Jeremiah 8, 9 really forms a commentary on their heart. The wise men, they were supposed to be the wise men, the leaders of the people of God. The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord and what wisdom is in them. This section of Mark revolves around the authority of Christ. We will see that in the texts that follow. Knowing Jesus means bowing to his authority with a loving heart and a heart filled with faith. And it's still the case, bowing before his written word. The heart issue is now to be illustrated by the Lord Jesus in this parable that he taught here. But before saying something about that parable, they question Jesus' authority they do not want to give up their own authority because for all of their religiosity, they do not want the Lord to rule over their lives. It should be so evident that he is the Messiah. And we face the same issue. God's word comes to us. It is from God. It is clear. It is plain and all of those things necessary for salvation. Divinity is stamped all over the Bible. It is plenary inspiration all through the Bible. Every word of it divinely inspired. And by nature, we hear that word and we rebel. And we do not want the word of God. We do not want the authority of Christ in our lives. We do not want to give up our sin. That's true of all of us fallen in Adam and born in original sin. And throughout this entire section, knowing Jesus means receiving him for who he is and bowing before his authority. And each of us will bow now or we will bow when he comes again at the end of the age. But it will happen. Everyone will bow, acknowledge, recognize the authority of Jesus Christ the Lord. So we now come to the parable itself. This is second, the parable of the vineyard. And this takes in chapter 12, the first eight verses or so. In 12.1, the leaders reject Christ's authority. The parable he addresses, he addresses to their hearts. Now notice that it says in verse 1 that he speaks to them in parables. And Matthew actually records three parables here, but Mark records only this one. He singles out this parable as most important for the point that he wants us to see. 
And so there's this owner of a vineyard. He has this vineyard. He has taken care to make it so that, that those tenants that would come there could make a great profit from it. There's the vineyard with a wine press and a tower, leased to the tenants, all is ready for them, and they owed a portion of the produce to the owner of the vineyard. And in verse 2, the owner sent a servant to collect. They've had time to do their farming, to do their work, to produce their products. And the owner sent this servant to collect, and the servant represents the authority of the owner in claiming what is his due. And in chapter 12, verse 3, they did not give the owner his due, but rather they seized and they beat the servant and sent him back empty-handed. And then in chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, we see that others were sent. This must have happened multiple times. And the word that is used here, darrow, means to skin. It means to flay. It means to beat. What they did to those men, we would say, is they beat them to a pulp. But there was still one other, a beloved son. Verses 6 through 8 again. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Last of all, he sent his son. Surely they will respect my son. But no, they plotted against him to get rid of him, the heir, and then when he's dead, all of this will be ours. Our authority will be intact. So they cast him out and they killed him. So what does this mean? Third, the parable explained. In verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. He will come and kill those who have mistreated his servants, who have killed his son. The owner of the vineyard is God. The servants that have come before the Son were the prophets, such as John the Baptist, who proclaimed him. The beloved Son is Christ. And those who owe the owner are the Jewish leaders and their followers who are about to crucify our Lord. And when it says beloved son, it may be that there's an intentional echo of Genesis 22, the sacrifice of Isaac, Abram's only, his beloved son. Or readers of this gospel would have remembered at Jesus' baptism and at the transfiguration, this is my beloved son, hear him, receive his authority, this is my beloved son. But what of this beloved son that they reject? Well, Jesus quotes Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The builders had this perfect stone that would have been the only, the only cornerstone that would have held the building properly, and they could have built upon it correctly. 
and the elders, the priests, the scribes, those rejecting him, rejecting Christ, rejected him as the stone upon which the kingdom of God should be built. And in rejecting the cornerstone, they reject God, and they reject Christ, and they reject atonement, and they reject salvation, and they reject the kingdom. So the stone rejected by the Jewish leaders will become the very cornerstone of the building. The God they claimed to represent, but knew in the depths of their hearts they did not represent, well, his resurrection. Jesus' resurrection proclaims with finality to these leaders from you, the kingdom will be taken away. From you, authority is removed. And so we read in verse 12, and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Just as in the parable, they desired to kill the son, sent with absolute authority by the divine owner of the vineyard. In verse 7 of this chapter 12, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So by nature, our hearts are stony. And if we could do so, we would take out, I'm talking about by nature, apart from knowing Christ, we would take out those stones from our hearts and throw them right in the face of the owner of the vineyard, God himself, who claims his right over us. As we are confronted with the lordship of Christ, his right to rule over us, we would take those stony hearts and cast them at God. And this is the propensity of our nature, fallen sinful, dark, and this is why we need a Savior. This is why we need Jesus Christ. This is why we need grace. Our hearts are not far removed from what we see in this passage. By nature, our hearts are the same. We are capable of the same sins, if not restrained by God. And so he knows their plan, that they want to kill him, all the way back in verse 18 of chapter 11, and the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. So here we have a portrait of a natural heart, a heart that has not been saved by grace. What are the effects of this parable? This is fourth, the effects of the parable. God's Word searched their hearts. Again, chapter 12, verse 12, they were seeking to answer him, but feared the people, for they perceived he had told the parable against them. God's Word did search their hearts, because there's never neutrality before the Word of God. We can't say they're believers and unbelievers. I'm just going to be neutral. Oh, no, no. There are two responses when the Word of God is proclaimed, when it is read. Two responses when the Word comes to sinners. Through the Holy Spirit, men see the truth about themselves and they believe and they repent, or their hearts are hardened all the more. And hardening is exactly what we find in this passage. 
deepening their rebellion. The prophets had come. John the Baptist had come. Jesus himself had come. They reject them all. They will kill the Son. And every person will deepen in his rebellion unless God in his grace intervene. Throwing the Son of God out of God's vineyard, this is the aim of the fallen human heart, utter rejection of God and his truth. So thank God that we hear of his sovereign grace in the Bible. Thank God we have a verse such as Isaiah 65, 1, I am found of them that sought me not. Oh, how, how can I testify to this, people of God, that when God regenerated my heart and granted me saving faith and repentance, I sought him not. My child's heart was so filled with darkness. I did not want the God who is. I wanted the God that looked very much like myself. I was not seeking God in his kingdom when he found and saved me. But now, fifthly, let's spend a few moments with the rejected stone. In verses 10 and 11, have you not read the scripture, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. We need to spend a little time here with some brief remarks because the Lord Jesus is quoting Psalm 118 verses 22 and 23 that would have been known to these Passover worshipers already it had been cited during the time of his entry into Jerusalem. And in rabbinic literature, the scribes were called builders. They should have been the very first to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. The stone perfectly shaped to be the cornerstone was set aside by the builders, the scribes and their followers. And these expert builders failed to recognize his perfection, his value, and cast this stone away. And they would rather build their own temple rather than to be used for God and his temple. Jesus is the cornerstone in God's temple. He is the one who gives shape as the building is built, who keeps the walls straight. The alignment of every additional stone depends upon the placement of the cornerstone properly and the right cornerstone at that. And so it is with your life and with mine. If we build our own temple, our own lives, all will be out of alignment, nothing will be straight, nothing will be right, for he alone can hold life together. He alone is the one through whom we have access to God. And there is not only the rejection theme, but there is also the exaltation theme of the stone. We'll hold that for the end. So the next thing I want to do is to say from this simple parable, very pointed parable, I want us to make some additional applications. So this is the sixth thing, application to our day, to our time, to our circumstances, to our lives. And there are certain themes that we find here. Among those themes is the theme of profession without possession. His parable here is just what our Lord taught in the blasting of the fig tree. It's the theme of barrenness. The promises of God for blessing will always come to fruition for his true people, but the church and its visibility is mixed. There are those who truly believe and there are those who do not. And a generation can rise, as certainly happened here in ancient Israel, 
a generation can arise that does not believe. And they can destroy the vineyard. They can be very religious. And the Lord will hold those who destroy his vineyard accountable. And so I appeal to you to trust in Christ. And young people, do not be that generation that professes but does not possess. There also is the theme of abusing privileges. Now think, the owner of this vineyard gave them the privilege to rent. He gave them the privilege to be there. He provided everything that they needed. And these people thought that they were safe because of their privileges. And rather than acknowledge God as the giver and keeper of these things and receive the messengers and receive the Son, they would act autonomously. And multitudes think that they're safe because of their privileges, because their names are on a roll of a church, or because they're baptized. Some substitute the Lord's Supper for Christ himself. All of these things are very important in their right place. But the Lord sometimes removes his blessings and leaves alone such generations and peoples, and there's a famine of the Word of God, just as we have in our land in large measure. They are left in spiritual darkness. Sin and death and heaven and hell are great realities. Have you discovered that? You need to ask yourself the question, am I born of God? It's not the, it's not the, 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 the membership, your name on the roll. Membership is extraordinarily important, but it's not that that redeems or saves. It's not the baptismal register. That's the evidence of regeneration recoil from the idea that a person can have grace and yet no one can see it. A new heart, but it doesn't show in his choices and conduct. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And then there's another theme here. In this parable, there's the theme of messengers and the message that was brought. In this passage, the Lord sent messengers to claim what was rightly his. And in our day, the Lord sends his written word to us. And gifts, ministers of the word that proclaim his lordship, his ownership of our lives. And what is our response? Our response in faith should be, yes, Lord, I want this. I want to hear that word. I want to receive those promises. I want to trust this Christ. I want to live for him. He's the owner of the vineyard. He's the owner of my life, and I want him to have all of the produce. It's all of grace, and I want it. Or do we say, I want to kill the son. I want to remove the messenger I do not want to receive the message. Is my heart, is your heart, open to the message and open to the messenger? Send your messenger with his message to my heart. In his work on Mark, Cranfield asks this question. Are we going to be like the chief priests and the scribes and resent his interferences, or are we going to welcome the Lord to whom we belong? Do we recognize that this Christ has the right to lay his finger on my life and to say, you're mine, live for me? Or to put it differently, is Christ enthroned in your heart and in your conscience? 
do you know this Redeemer or this Savior? But there's still another theme here, and it's the theme of punishment. It's there in verse 9 in particular. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And even though it doesn't speak of eternal punishment here, the Bible is very clear about the eternal punishment of the wicked. Eternal punishment because we have sinned against an infinitely holy God, and that's why Christ came to remove that wrath. Romans 5 tells us that Christ died for the ungodly, not for those who were esteemable, but for those who have rejected his authority, those who have killed his messengers, those who have rejected his son, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou wilt be saved. Well, these people sinned against the light. They sinned against light and against their own consciences, against the law that they claim to believe, against a then not yet completed Bible that especially the scribes lived in every day and never saw its meaning fundamentally. Let me draw a contrast for you. Someone who receives the message, who loves the Word, who trusts in Christ, and he comes to his deathbed. Someone who's very religious and plays games, uses it for his own authority, uses it for self-aggrandizement, comes to his deathbed. I read these illustrations again recently in a book by Ian Murray. He used them differently. I want to use them to show this contrast. So we have Josias Welch, who was the son of John Welch. They were both great Presbyterian ministers in our heritage. And Josias died in 1634. And when on his deathbed he began to, to pass, he clapped both his hands and cried out, victory, victory, victory forevermore. Now there's a man who received the message. He knew where he was going. He knew in whom he believed. He trusted Christ as his Redeemer. Now for a contrast. The great Presbyterian Robert Blair, and this was during the time when royalty was trying to enforce episcopacy on on the Church of Scotland, and some ministered in Northern Ireland as well. Well, Blair was excommunicated by the Bishop of Down in 1634. Blair was a godly man, a faithful minister of the word. The sentence pronounced, Blair rose from his seat, and he told the bishop, you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And the bishop said that he would appeal to mercy. And Blair said, your appeal is like to be rejected because you act against the light of your own conscience. And soon thereafter, the bishop became gravely ill and was dying. And his physician was called and he arrived and he said, what's the trouble? And the bishop took a long time to answer. He was long silent, the record says and with great difficulty uttered these words. The physician said, what's the trouble? The bishop, abusing authority, abusing his privilege, the bishop said to the doctor, it's my conscience, man. It's my conscience. 
To which the doctor replied, I have no cure for that. And when Jesus speaks of the worm dying not in an eternal hell, do you know what he means? He's talking about the worm of conscience. The conscience of those who have sinned against God and have never come to Christ and never trusted him and their consciences will continue to control deeply, fundamentally control them for eternity to come. And so, to use Luther's words, I call upon you to immerse your conscience in Jesus' blood. That there is only one who can cleanse a sinner's conscience. There is only one who can save you from that darkness. There is only one who can deliver from a hell that we all justly deserve because in going to the cross and sacrificing himself for sinners, there is a sufficiency in that satisfaction for any sinner who trusts in Christ. And you're called to believe him and to trust him. But there's another theme I told you we would come back to. That is the theme of the exalted son and his kingdom. For Jesus says, have you not read this scripture from Isaiah? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. And so those who oppose the cornerstone will be crushed by that cornerstone. By the very son that they have rejected, but the father has exalted. And that's where the good news is for you, people of God. This exalted Savior was raised by God's power on the third day. He was murdered. He was killed. In that, God's plan of atonement is fulfilled, but wicked men were fully responsible for their own sinful deed. But God raised him by his own power on the third day. He's alive. His body is not in a tomb. The cornerstone has been placed He is building his kingdom. He is placing within his temple living stones whom he has saved. And the walls are straight. And the temple will be led to complete perfection in the end. And no case is too hard for the risen Lord. No sinner is beyond his ability to save. And so we have these themes that are serious indeed. But also we have a risen Lord who is able to save from all of those things that dominate us outside of grace. And the church built of living stones, founded on Christ, the cornerstone. No matter how many messengers are rejected, how many messages heard are rejected, how much the word is rejected. God has his people, his stones that he will build on that cornerstone and the church of Jesus Christ, come what may, will never be snuffed out because Jesus rules and reigns. And so I ask you again, is Christ enthroned in your heart and in your conscience?
for he rules and reigns, whether you see it or not. And the time will come where everyone will see it. Glory be to his name. Amen. Amen.